Financial education is an important life lesson that all children can benefit from. By teaching kids about money early on, they can develop good financial habits that will serve them well throughout their lives. There are many ways to teach children about money, and the best way to do it depends on the child's age and level of understanding. When I was a child, my parents didn't have the tools to have conversations with my siblings and me about money, and we didn't receive some of those foundational financial skills that I needed later in life. In talking with clients, people, and kids, I discovered there's a lot lacking when it comes to financial literacy and financial education. It has been a mission of mine to normalize conversations around money and finances. And I believe it's never too early to empower kids to learn about money. I'm so excited about this special edition of Money You Should Ask, as I've invited Philip McAdoo, my new friend and fellow co-author of our new children's book, Darius Wants a Dog. Philip and I talk about the challenges and rewards of adoption, his love of dogs, financial literacy for children, and his experiences with his son, Zayden. I hope you enjoy this powerful conversation. Darius Wants a Dog is the perfect book to teach your children about money. This engaging book teaches young readers about Darius. Darius decides that he desperately needs to have a dog and quickly learns that wanting new things can also require time, money, being responsible, and sometimes deciding it's okay to change your mind. To learn more about Darius Wants a Dog, click on the link in the show notes. I'm Bob Wheeler, and this is Money You Should Ask, where we explore why we do what we do when it comes to money. McAdoo brings over 15 years of experience as a diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner and educator. He is currently the vice president of DEI at Earth Justice. As an openly gay educator and activist, Philip has worked tirelessly to combat homophobia in his personal and professional life by fiercely advocating for himself, his family, and the rights of LGBTQ youth, families, and educators as well. He joined Representative John Lewis to advocate in support of Every Child Deserves a Family Act which would lower some of the barriers faced by same-sex couples who want to adopt children from foster care, as Philip and his partner Sean did. Philip is also the author of Independent Queers, LGBTQ Educators in Independent Schools Speak Out, and the children's book, Every Child Deserves. Well, I am super excited. I have my co-author here, Dr. Philip McAdoo, who co-wrote this book. We initially met through Hanifa Wood, a wonderful, amazing friend of mine. Yes. Who you met, I believe, on Broadway. Yes. We were doing the rent. I don't know if she leaves this out of the story. She was actually homeless. And so she slept on my couch. I gave her my apartment for an extended period of time. I was like, just stay here. I remember my fondest memory is coming home and Hanifa sitting on my sofa watching like soap operas. So we... <laughs> Instantly fell in love and she told me how great you were and that we had to meet. And I'm so glad she did. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Hanifa. And thank you, Bob. Yeah, no, we got to And Hanifa did not tell me that she couldn't pay rent when she was in rent. <laughs> oh, but, yeah. She used to wear this like her uncle's, I think it was like utility like jumpsuit. He worked at like an electric company and that was the outfit she always wore. So, yeah, but definitely a hard worker. And she deserves all the success that's happening for her. So I'm really proud of her. She does. She does. We love Hanifa. I'm so excited because when originally I had this idea, Darius wants a dog. I just really loved the name Darius. And I was really excited about the story. And I had this idea for these 
different kids to all come from these different backgrounds. Yeah. And I wanted to highlight all these underrepresented kids, which for me, I never realized like, oh, look, all the dolls are white or, oh man, like these subtle things. And I got super excited and I was talking with my book editor coach, Amanda, and she said, you know, Bob, this is such a great idea, but there's a problem. I was like, oh, she goes, "Mm, you're white. You're white. There's that thing. There's that thing. It's a problem. Yeah. So when she said, well, you could co-write these different stories with people from the communities, I was like, that's such a cool idea. And then Hanifa hooked, and Darius was the book. I just wanted to lead with Darius. Yeah. I love all the kids, but Darius was my kid. And you told me you went through an experience with your son and a dog and all the responsibility. Yeah. So it was a match made in heaven. And it didn't change, right? Because as you're talking, I'm remembering that we adopted my son. He was six. And then we had a dog that we really much was a part of our family and loved so much so that during the parenting classes, they told us to kind of rank. And I was like, my dog, my partner, and this potential new kid, like in that order, <laughs> that order. And they were like, what if the kid doesn't like the dog? I'm like, then the kid is going back. And so <laughs> Cecil was our first dog. And my son was adopted out of foster care. So there was some jealousy. I mean, he was six. And so he felt like he had to fight for our attention. And so when Cecil died, we were just a mess. And he came home from school. He cried, but it was kind of like, I was like, oh, that's sweet. He's trying. (laughs) And so then when we got a new dog and we have a pit mix, he was a part of the process. But, you know, it's like, okay, now you have to walk the dog. Now you have to pick up the poop. All the things that he is like, oh. And then when his friends would come over and really go crazy about our dog, then he would kind of like fake like he loved the dog. I'm like, dude. And then fast forward to now he's 17. This was like when he was seven, we got a new dog. This was supposed to be for him. COVID was hard on him. So we're like, let's get you a dog. You can pick it up. Same as Dobby, like the elf. He loves Harry Potter. (laughs) Same thing. Dobby's right there asleep on my bed. This one's here because the kid just can't. And then he comes back and they're like poop bags in his pocket. I'm like, you have to pick up the poop. You can't leave it in the neighborhood. Still the responsibility at 17 is hard for kids. You know, it's just like this shiny new thing. And then you really have to take care of it but he loves the snuggles and the hugs. He just left my room. He was like, can I have the dogs? I'm like, you didn't walk me today. No, you cannot. <laughs> That's the rule. That's the rule. You got to have rules. Yeah. Well, and dogs are different than bikes. Like you can have the shiny new bike, but you don't have to feed it. <laughs> That's true. But you know, I guess also kids are at the age, well, from my experience with my son, where I don't know, I guess as an adult, you experience life and when you really tap into what it means to be loved. And people talk all the time about the unconditional love of pets. And I was a pet owner later in life, like my adult life. And I'm hooked. My mom's here. She said, what are you going to do one day when they answer you? Like, I'm going to applaud because they answer (laughs) me now. But just having that level of like, okay, this is going to be constant and that they love you. You feed them, of course, which is why they love you. But (laughs) I just love it. I mean, I was just telling my friend, I was like, I want one more dog. My partner's like, no, because we have two. They're like, no. I'm like, don't you remember Oprah and all her dogs? I want to be like Oprah. They're like, you're not Oprah. We're not getting another dog. So, Because we have this big property now. We moved out of the city. Nice. Two acres. And I'm like, I just want dogs running around. So I think I can get one more and then I'll be done. 
Well, you know, you've got the space to do three dogs, right? Yes, definitely. And maybe a baby elephant and a llama and a few other things. Well, we have these. We have fox and we have okay. whatever critter is running around. Just saw a cat tonight running around. So they're out there. That's too fun. So your son was six when you adopted him. Yes. And you started to have conversations with him probably I mean, he was talking, so... Oh, yeah, yeah, fully talking. He's probably going, I don't like this. I don't want to do this. And do you have conversations with your son about money? Do you have those, you know, not the serious talk, but these conversations? You have none is what the conversation is. You have no money because he has this green light app where, Mm -hmm. you know, he gets weekly allowance, for lack of a better word, but he's 17. And so he hasn't had a job. And I don't mind that. He COVID was hard. We moved. And so he was trying to get settled in school. So I don't mind that he hasn't like, when is he going to work? He's been in school and committed to his mental health. So we're trying to find the right balance. But, you know, kids with walking around with cash as a teenager can be dangerous. I'm like, what are you going to do? And what are you going to buy? You know, so we're trying to find the balance. And then the grandparents come and they slip the money. I'm like, where did you get money? Like, what's going on? So we do talk about money. Again, the fact is you don't have any. This is ours. But he's really like a good kid in terms of chores and things he does around the house. It's really great. But my partner and I are very different. He grew up in D.C. I grew up in the South, poor than he, poorer than he was. And we always say, like, when someone dies in my family, it's like, okay, we need to get together and bury them. And when his family's like, oh, grandmother left you some money. So we were always... (laughs) There's this whole diversity experience happening in our house. And so we're trying to just kind of balance our different lived experiences and what we put on our son. Because my partner will tell you, oh, I had a paper out and blah, blah, blah. I worked, you know, I've always worked. And I guess as a performer, that's a blessing too. Someone who started in theater. And so I just want him to find something he's passionate about and something that he's willing to work for. I think that's hard, like when kids can sit in their room and they think being an influencer they have those kind of instant gratifications. So we're really trying to balance those with like, okay, education is going to be one of the keys that can get you there. And he's like, no, no, I can just do it on TikTok. You know, so (laughs) that's what the conversations we're trying to balance. Yeah, no, absolutely. And do you think, I mean, most people going into the arts, everybody's always saying, don't go into the arts. You You won't make a lot of money. But if you're already coming from a place that didn't have a lot of money, that may not be the motivating conversation. Right. Or if you like, for me, it was like all these different things. I was black, I was poor, I was gay in a small town in the South. So I needed to get out. Right. And so the arts was one of the ways to kind of get through that. And I'm like, more less than money was the conversation of like, how am I going to follow my dreams? And like, what does that mean for a little kid who wants to be an actor Mm -hmm. or a musical theater on Broadway? And then also realizing that I'm different and then knowing that this difference would be really something that's frowned upon in my community. So it was about my self-worth. And I was fortunate to be able to live in New York and tell the story. Oh, I remember I called my acting teacher. I was like, oh, I've been in New York for three months and I finally got my first Broadway show. And then my acting coach is like, I've been in New York for 10 years and I've never gotten a Broadway show. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So 25 years later, we just celebrated the 25th year of Lion King on Broadway. Yesterday, we just came back and I took my son. So it really is great. And at the same time, there were stories of people who were in the Broadway shows with me who had to get different jobs or like my friends on Broadway who lost all of their income 
that was coming in when COVID happened. Right. You got to think about those different things. And we had a conversation just yesterday about money. And they're like, hey, you're an actor. There's a mortgage you have to do. So you go from Broadway to catering in the same year. <laughs> right. And so those were real, which is why I always wanted different options for myself. Education was key in terms of going back and doing some teaching and all the things that I was able to do while I was fortunate to be working as a professional actress when I got my doctorate. Now I was on Broadway writing research papers, right. doing all these things. So I felt lucky in that way. And the struggles of a starving artist is real when you think about the percentage of people who really make it. And I feel very fortunate to have come through New York at a time where I have a lot of really great friends in my network who went on to do some good stuff. So I always bully them, like, come do this for me or do something for the kids, <laughs> which is great. That is awesome. That's amazing to me that you're running out there doing a musical, mm. doing the plays, and then writing for your doctorate. Yeah. Most people would have been just like, wait, are we going to get pizza after the show? So yeah. what was it, do you think? Was it just something that was your mom told you? It just was something that you knew? Like, most people would not have that drive. No, it was the kids, right? Because at the time, it was my master's and I got my doctor late. It was the kids. I was in New York and I started volunteering at an inner city school uh, and meeting those kids. I was like, oh, I'll go down, you know, like my cool little outfits. And it took a lot for me to build their trust. And I remember they said to me, oh, we thought you were a substitute. You just kept coming back. <laughs> and I remember my first day, they opened up a room of middle schoolers and they just kind of like, okay, there you go. And I was like, whoa, what's happening? And it was them. It was like, okay, here I am, these mostly poor kids of color, like, how can I be the best version of myself for them? Mm. How can I be the best example? And so I just started going back. I realized like, oh, crap, I never finished college. So I was three classes away from finishing college. So I finished my undergrad degree in New York. I went to University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I took three classes in New York to finish. Then I went and got my master's while I was there. I was like writing those papers backstage and going on stage. <laughs> and then this is what really did it. We adopted my son. We're in the adoption process and going through one of the parenting classes and they were like, you know, what's he going to call you? And my partner is a doctor, a medical doctor. And I was like, wait, I'm not going to have this little kid call him doctor and not me doctor. And so that was the motivating force for me going to the University of Pennsylvania and getting my doctorate. I was like, I will have my son call both his dad's doctor. So that was the <laughs> little bit of thing like... That's not going to happen. But, you know, it was always about the kids. Always like, how can yeah. I be the best example for them? And at myself, like at some point, it became really fun for me to learn, to read a book and to do all the things that I hated or just kind of skated through in college. So the stakes were a lot higher. And it's pretty amazing because to be able to be a role model for these kids, somebody that looks like them, that yeah. can relate to them, like that's big. Yeah. And it's huge, right? And that's why I'm really conscious of the things that I had to give up. Like I remember in 11th grade, it was the night before we were like graduation, but we had to be like the marshals, like the top 20 students had to work at the graduation ceremony. And they were like, okay, guys, go out and get khaki pants and a Navy blazer. There was such a huge assumption that I had that. I was like, right. Black people don't dress that way from my experience. Like my, and so I had to like wear this thing and I felt so uncomfortable. Even like these school settings where they were like, you have to wear a tie. Somebody said to me, no one's going to take you serious unless you have a tie on. And I was like, 
I don't see myself, like I don't see the kids that I grew up with, the people I looked up to in these settings. And I like to play with people too. It feels so cool for me to like show up as Dr. McAdoo with like a hat on or with like some jeans or a hoodie, <laughs> because there are so many assumptions that people make about who we are. I'm like, yes, I got my doctorate. And like, yes, I went to a great school. And yes, you call me Dr. McAdoo. And so again, it's for the kids. Like I want them to be able to say, oh shoot, I can wear like a fitted hat or I can wear a hoodie or I can wear like cool sneakers and get my doctorate. That's, all. and I do like to dress up too, but like, that's a big part of it. Like I'm really conscious of the lens in which kids see us and view us and see themselves. Yeah. And I'm wondering though, with that little bit of sense of humor wearing the hat, did you ever mess with anybody where they're like, well, we can't say anything because he's a doctor and we don't want to offend him, but we didn't think he'd wear a hat, right? Like so many people are intimidated. Oh yeah. Because they got to be, we got to do it right. We got to be sensitive and right. I would mess with people. <laughs> oh, I do. Like I mess with people for all kinds of things, but you know, there's a little bit of like elitism with that. And so that mm -hmm. rubs me the wrong way. And so some yeah. people call me Dr. And I feel like, oh shoot. But you know, I remember on like the darkest night when we were like sitting in there, our study room and writing like the third revision of this 250 page dissertation. I was like, damn it, when I finish, they're going to call me Dr. McAdoo. You're going to call me. I've earned this. But you know, you finish and it's like, oh, okay. It's like a personal victory, right? Yeah. And for me, I was raised to be really humble. And so my people call me Dr. McAdoo sometimes. They're like, oh, you like, just call me Philip. But I'm like, oh yeah, I did do that. It's like we were talking about earlier. I've been really fortunate to live the life that I dream to go from the theater, to go from education, to do now the DEI work, like things that I'm really passionate about. And it made no sense. Like I remember being in grad school and I had all these superintendents, like people running these charter schools, people who were teaching. And I'm like, oh, I'm the Broadway guy. And so I was like trying to figure out my story. And my best friend, Dr. Charlene Reed from graduate school, we had like this feedback session. And she said, you know what I like about you? I was like, no. She said, you can go to a room, any room, and you can connect with people. She said, you've been on Broadway. You're an educator. You're an athlete. Like all the different things that you do are really different ways for you to build relationships. And I was like, oh, man. And so she really helped me because I was really nervous and self-conscious and kind of psyching myself out. I'm like, do I belong here? Do I belong here? And so after that conversation, I said, okay, this is where I belong. And I now enter into these spaces just fully confident. People are nervous about presentations. Like, you're nervous about presentations? Why are you nervous? Because that's my theater background. Right. So it's been really helpful to kind of finally make the connection between this, like, really fun and interesting life. And the diversity, equity, and inclusion work is incredibly important. I mean, right. at least now it has a name and people have awareness. I know. <laughs> it's always been important. <laughs> right. But we didn't know what to call it. You're so right, Bob. It has a name now. It has a name. And you had the privilege, I would say, or the honor of getting to work with Representative John Lewis yeah. and working on a bill and you wrote a book. Like, how did you get to be involved with that? I mean, that's just in and of itself would have been a really cool thing. It was amazing. And again, you know, hey, you know, you're in the John Lewis's district. You're a same-sex couple. You just adopted a kid. Do you want to come to Washington to kind of advocate for this bill? And I'm like, Okay. I mean, I'm the like of the partner, the two guys in the relationship. Like I'm the one that like secretly auditions for reality shows. And when they say, Hey, can we meet your partner? And I'm like, no, he would never do it. So I've done that twice, by the way, true story. But you know, so I'm like, yes, I'll come to Washington and you know, I'll bring Zayden 
and we'll work with John Lewis. And I have this vivid memory of Zayden grabbing John Lewis and kind of like dragging him down the halls of Congress <laughs> and all the secret tunnels. We got a tour. And I remember we were leaving the Capitol and there's an interviewer from the Huffington Post. And they were like, tell us about your day, Zayden. And then Zayden had this beautiful moment where they asked him what every child deserves. And he was like, every child deserves a family. And so it was great. And then throughout the course of just his wonderful <laughs> new life, like all the different experiences we were having, I thought every child deserves this. So Zayden and I did this children's book really based on the experiences we had. We adopted Zayden. I was in Africa. And so we had to play the weird timeline between when he would come between my trip to Africa. He came, I came home, then Sean went to Africa. So Africa had this weird through line in his life. And I remember the first time we took him, he's like walking on Delta. He's like, how many miles are we getting for this dad? I'm like, miles, you were sitting in foster care literally like eight months ago. And now you're going to South Africa. Or the second time we went and we were in the townships and he's like, I'll be back. I'm like, where are you going? He's like, I'm just going to go play with some of my friends. So it's like those type of experiences. He loves Ethiopian food. Like he was so open. It was this wonderful sense of entitlement when we met him. He's like, ah, now I can be a child. Like now I can go back. And they always talk about the kids back to the time when they were abandoned or put into care. So it was like always this beautiful sense of, oh, I've had to be strong for so long. Now I can go back to being a kid. So it's been a wonderfully difficult, complicated journey. Still angry with foster care. And I think about what some of these kids have to endure. Like, why can't we make that system better for them? Yeah. And I know there's some great things happening. And I think also there's some horrible things happening. And so sometimes I just weep for him and what he had to endure. And one of my favorite people in the world. And it's just that fear. Like I tell myself each day, I'm not going to parent with fear. And what that looks like is if he doesn't do his homework, like, oh my gosh, you're going to be a dropout. I go to the extreme. And so I'm trying to like just stay in the moment, be more loving and gentle and nurturing. And yet it's that fear of like, this is it. I'm responsible for this person for the rest of my life, no matter what happens. And so it's a lot of that. And, you know, he was adopted. So there's also this fear of like, I'm not, we're not going to be good enough and that him wanting to go and find his biological family. So I'm just trying to let all that go and just really be present and I used to love my dad dressed up, so he didn't take after me for that. But I do like to put in a good suit for him. I like, okay, okay, we have to go to this event. Are you ready? Let's go. So, yeah, but he's a great kid. I feel so fortunate to be on this journey with him. So here you are, no kid, life is good. Awesome. Six-year-old kid. Now, all of a sudden, not awesome. you're going to get held accountable. <laughs> you're going to get called out. You're going to be yeah. expected to like be honest and transparent. Like That's a lot. A lot changes when you have a kid. And Bob, what I didn't realize is that you're working out your shit, right? Yeah. Your partner's working out their shit. And so you both end up working out your shit on this one kid right. who has all the shit that he came with. So I can imagine <laughs> right. him just looking at us like, whoa. And so... My parents are here now. And so I'm thinking about, okay, what are the things that haunt me about that relationship? What are the things that are unresolved? And then how do I sometimes impose that on Zayden, our son? Yeah. And then how can I not do that? And like, I remember I used to talk to my mom every day and blah, 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 like that kind of stopped. I'm like, when is that going to stop for him? Or when's that ever going to start? And so it's this whole thing of really trying to heal 
from your childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. And I can't even imagine the trauma. I mean, I had, by all means, a wonderful childhood. My mom and dad were both there. They were present. So I cannot imagine the sense of loss that my kid felt early in this life. Yeah. And so to try to unpack that, I mean, something as simple as we got him. He tells, he loves the story. He said, I was so afraid when I came because he comes, you know, he was in a two-bedroom apartment with a bunch of other kids. And he comes and he has his own room in this four-bedroom house, his own bathroom. And it's, everything had been like custom-made. There was graffiti on the wall with the Zayden. I had stepped through the ceiling a couple of days before trying to get everything ready. And <laughs> I was up in the attic and I stepped and I was like, that's my foot. That's my son's room. And I just started bawling. Because I was like, he's going to come, there's going to be a hole on the ceiling. So there was a lot of attention and detail to the house. Yeah. And his memory was like, just felt big. It felt so big. He said, it was scary because I didn't have that before. And we're thinking that, oh, we're giving you this most amazing place. And it was frightening and overwhelming. And one of my favorite memories is when we go to bed, we could hear him in the middle of the night to come and run and jump in our bed with us. And I was like, oh, I miss those moments. But yeah, you know, like those things really just blow me away, blow me away. That is so cool. Do you ever find yourself saying things that your parents said to you and then you catch yourself going, ah? Oh, yes, (laughs) all the time because I said so. Because I said so is my favorite thing or like stop. Like we even just in New York, he was like, when are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? I'm like, the conductor is telling us. (laughs) <laughs> the exact time between each stop. Listen to him. He's going to tell you when we're going to get there. Like all the questions. My cousin was with us too. I was like, there are too many questions, honey. You're asking me too many questions. And as a kid, he did that as well. And it was because my dad was quiet. Like my dad didn't talk to us a lot. And so I am trying to be better about that. And I remember there was a shift when Zayden was saying something to me and he kept saying that, that and I was like, yes, honey. And then he made a connection between his biological father and and the memory he had of him ignoring him all the time and not speaking to him. So I was like, oh, I got to be different for this kid, right? And it was was something similar in terms of my dad wasn't really talkative when we were growing up. And so I just kind of learned to adjust carrying that bad habit into my child's life where he's like really active and engaging and wanting to chat. Now it's different. I'm like, he's 17. I'm like, get that away from me or talk to your (laughs) other dad. Like we kind of balance each other out. Right. And I think a lot of it is just like when you're an actor and you're on the stage. For me, it was like, okay, eight times a week, I'm going to do this thing where I have to go and just be this puppet, sometimes literally a puppet. And so that time, my time, my quiet time, really kind of go in. So I think trying to find that balance when I'm not on stage and like when I'm present with my kid, all the attention. But, you know, I'm the one that likes to do things, my partner, and be like, ah, whatever. But they have some really awesome conversations about things that I don't even care about. So that's good. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, or I just look at them like, I don't want to hear, I don't want to talk about this. So it's great. <laughs> that's when having a partner helps. Yeah. <laughs> like, pass the torch for just a little bit. Yes. Pass the baton. Definitely. You know, you're talking about you're working out your shit, your partner's working out his shit, your son's working out his shit, sort of the shit show, right? And catching yourself saying, because I said so, but did you find when you had your son, you brought him home, finding yourself, especially as an actor, role-playing, like, oh, now dad must be a certain way. Like, did you find yourself having to work against maybe unconscious beliefs that a dad should show up this way or? Well, no, I mean, not really. There was a lot of, 
when you grow up gay and in the South and you have to kind of fight for it and go through a lot of shit, like I remember saying, okay, once my parents know, once my friends know, I'm done. Like I'm done coming out to people. Like I'm just going to be who I am. And so I always knew that I wanted to live my life in the most authentic ways. Like I remember kids would come into my office and I'm like, do I say I have a partner? Do I say I'm gay? And so I was like, yeah, the guy next door has his wife and his kids up. I'm going to talk about my family too yeah. in the exact same way. So it was really clear from the beginning. Again, the stakes were higher because now there's a person yeah. in my house who's looking at me. who's like, okay, you have to be the model. And so I never, I didn't want him to be ashamed of his parents. I didn't want him to be ashamed of having two dads. So I have to carry that stigma. So I was very much kind of like, this is me, this is who I am. So I never really thought about just yet in terms of roles. People would say to us, our kid needs a mom, like who's going to be the mom? And I was like, what does that mean? And kind of fighting those stereotypes. And then also to just thinking about him and there was a real close attachment to his mom and like, <clears throat> what's that soft energy going to be? Because I can be very like, oh, come on, honey, get it. And so like, where's that soft space to fall? Because some of our female friends, he would immediately, like after the third time, I'm like, yeah, 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 I know. He called you mom, right? They're like, yeah, I'm like he does it all the time. So they would be like, oh, oh. I'm like, he called you mom? Yeah, you're not the first. Yeah, but then <laughs> you're not special. <laughs> exactly. But also realizing that there was a void and maybe initially thinking about how do I feel that? And then finally being like, I'm not, I can't do that. I'm just going to be me and hopefully you'll see that there's a soft space, that there's love there, but there are also some boundaries in terms of what I feel as a parent, things that you shouldn't do. And there are times where I have to be stirred. And so trying to balance that is always tricky. Like even now, like he's 17 and the moments where I find I'm engaging more because I'm like, you're going to be 18 and you're going to be a man. Like, how am I influencing those moments? And so I'm really enjoying this. Like it was like six and then 11 and then 12, this beast showed up. And so I think we're almost at the end of the beast period where <laughs> I'm really enjoying like talking to him about things that hopefully have an impact. But, you know, who knows? There's still lots of like, where's your homework? You don't have homework. You turned this in. You sure you turned it in? You told, oh yeah, like still a lot of non-truths happening. But, you know, again, we just kind of lean into those conversations. I'm better at that. I'm better at like not getting frustrated and being like, oh, go to your room. <laughs> or why can't, like, I was a good kid. I did my homework. I did this. Why can't you? So I had to let that go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I want to ask you these two questions. The first question is, what's the best thing about having a dog? Oh, gosh, the best thing. They're not going to be able to see us. This is all like voice, right? Yeah. My dog is right here. One is right under me and there's another one right there. It's just the unconditional dog puppy love that comes, right? Looking into those eyes and just, I love it. And sometimes they'll come and they'll put their head on my chest or they'll like wake you up in the morning, like, come on, let's go. I guess it's this feeling of, oh gosh, this is getting real deep, but just like this feeling of somebody needs you, like someone, for me, yeah. it's like depending on you and it's, to the detriment, I think, because like I was freaking out. I was like, who's going to take care of my dogs? I don't trust. Yeah. I worry about them, but you know, they're just these just amazing creatures who just bring me so much joy or like the ritual of going on a walk and then seeing a deer and have them drag you because they're chasing the deer. That's the best thing 
for me. I guess it's funny because in the book, we talk about Darius not wanting the responsibility. Yeah. The best thing for me would be the responsibility, like that I get to care for someone other than myself. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And it's worth cleaning up the poop and all the things that I've yelled at the dog going, oh. Until you like, till the bag breaks and you feel that one thing, you're like, oh, that's shit. That's dog shit on my fingers. Yeah. Yeah, but you get used to it. You get used to it. You get used to it. And what's the best thing about having Zayden? Wow. The best thing about having Zayden is he really is like this phenomenal kid. I have to remember that too. You know, I remember we were out, I was doing some work in California and we went to this event bringing it back to John Lewis, honoring John Lewis. And so it was this law firm was hosting it. We walk into this ballroom and they immediately say, okay, you're going to this table and Zayden's going to be at a different table. And I was like, what? And so I was like, okay. And at the time we were in San Francisco, he was starting to impress me. He was maybe 13. And I look over at one moment, and I see Zayden just holding court. I mean, he's talking, he's engaging, and people are like, this kid is so awesome, this kid is so awesome. So seeing his full potential, like seeing yeah. who he is, his true self at the core, those moments just really make me so happy. And knowing how hard it's been, how hard his story is, how you know his lived experiences, he's only scratching the surface and we get some really great therapy and he's really getting some wonderful wraparound services just to kind of make sense of the beginning. But to see him, his laugh, he had this wonderful laugh when he was a kid. Now it's a little fake, but it was so beautiful <laughs> when he would laugh. And so I love that moment. And I love his curiosity. And I keep talking to you like, you got to help me. I want to do a podcast. And the first person on my podcast will be Zayden because at one point, a couple of years ago, I wrote a book, Independent Queers, about educators who were queer. And Zayden came home and he's like, Dad, you never told me your coming out story. And I was like, and I just told you, like, I was done coming out once I came out. And I was like, <laughs> I didn't think about that. I didn't think about that. And I got so emotional in that moment. And I'm still waiting to have that conversation. Actually, I just talked to him a couple of days ago. And I was like, honey, I want to do this podcast. I want to talk to you about my coming out story. I want us to have that mm. conversation, but that will be the last time I come out. <laughs> I want to do it with him. I want to share that moment with him. I know I was really moved by how that impacted me. So I'm really looking forward to that conversation on my podcast that you're going to help me do. I'll help you with that one because you know what? That one's an important one. Yeah, it really is. It really is. That is amazing. Well, I'm so glad we got to have this conversation because I know. we just trusted with our friend that it was right. Yes. But I feel it was so perfect from my perspective that we wrote this book together because what you represent and all this work with diversity, equity, inclusion, yeah. that is so important to me. And it's not just something that you talk about. It's something that you're walking, <laughs> walking the talk. Yeah. And I can hear that in the way that you've raised your son. And I just feel so important because I'm passionate about financial literacy and kids. And so many kids in this country are underrepresented. Yes. And don't get to see themselves. And so I just feel like really privileged that we got to do this together it just feels very important. It is important. And thank you for including me, my friend. We took a leap of faith and I want to 
think about like what it would mean to tell some stories of kids in foster care because that's still really near and dear to my heart. So maybe we can, in our next couple of books, think about what it would mean to tell some of those wonderful stories and breathe some life into the wonderful ways that those kids just have to thrive under those conditions and the things that they deserve as well. So I'm excited just to be a part of it. I put something on Darius. People saw the picture. They went crazy like, oh, it's great. And then I put the picture of the two dads and I didn't get that many likes. I got some, but it was like the people from the high school were like, mm. I was like, oh, you didn't know this part, did you? So I'm so excited just to be a part of the story and continue to tell those stories, especially about money and financial literacy. Again, something that I didn't have as a kid. My sister and I mm -hmm. talk all the time about breaking that cycle because our parents didn't set us down because they were just hardworking parents. And they just never thought about it. And so there were some habits that we picked up that we need to break. We decided that we needed to break. And my partner will tell you that maybe the shopping needs to stop. But I will tell you that no, that doesn't. But, you know, so <laughs> learning to kind of be better, although I'm getting better. But as we cross over the big five you start thinking, OK, what's retirement going to look like? And so there's some things I wish I'd done differently. So we'll definitely be more conscious in terms of having those conversations with Zayden about what it means just in terms of thinking long-term. But, you know, as an actor, you're like, you're in the moment. Blah, 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 blah you know? So yeah, just being more thoughtful about that. Got to be thinking about the next show. <laughs> I know, right? Exactly, exactly. Because you never know where you're going to be. You got to have the next gig. Exactly. Look, I'm excited about normalizing conversations about money and yes. normalizing conversations about some families have two dads and some families have one mom. And they're all families. Or two dogs. Or two dogs. <laughs> <laughs> two dads and two dogs. Yeah. Two dads and two dogs. Man, it has just been such a pleasure. So I so appreciate you taking the time. I know you had carpool and picking up yes. your son and all kinds of stuff going on. But I'm so glad that we were able to make this time. And I'm so excited about the book. Yeah, And me too. I hope more people get to meet Darius because I think he's a cool kid too. So Awesome. And you're a cool kid too, Bob. Thank you for including me. I really appreciate you, my friend. Thank you so much. So appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Did you learn something new about your relationship to money today? Maybe you have a friend who has some financial blocks or beliefs that are holding them back. Please share this podcast so they too can get off the roller coaster ride of financial fears and journey towards financial freedom. To learn how to have a healthy relationship with money, visit themoneynerve.com. That's nerve, not nerd. We'll be back next week with another perspective on money and the emotions that bind us.